This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Well, good morning and welcome. We're going to start in just a couple minutes. There are still others coming in. If you're coming in, be sure to get the worksheet for the class. Uh, Dylan and Lindsay have them at the door. Is there anybody that has not gotten our worksheet? Just raise your hand and uh, Dylan and uh, Lindsay will be happy to, to give you one. It looks like they have done a great job putting them in your hands. We're going to wait just a minute or two before we start. I'll give you a little resume of the class. We're delighted you're here, excited that you're here. We're going to have a good time together over the next few hours. And so we will wait just a moment. Our class is scheduled to start at 8.45. And um, when Jesus comes, we want to be on time, right? And so we long to be on time. We start our class as well. So. Let's review before we start and before we pray a little bit about the time of the classes. This is a three-part series, and so if you're taking this class and you only get the first session, it's like eating the appetizer and missing the main meal. So you'll want to stay with us during the entire three-class period. Session one, two, and three, which today we have session at 8.45. I don't want you to miss that session. How many are going to be here for the first session? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, these are intelligent young people. I mean, I really knew I had a good class to start. Okay, so 8.45 to 9.45 is our first class. Then we'll take a 15-minute exercise break. Um, if you have to go to the bathroom, you do have permission to do that, but I'm going to exercise you here so that your brain thinks clearly. And then, uh, third, then today we go from 10 to 11, have a lunch break, and we go to 2 to 3. That completes this class. So if you want to take another class um, in another teacher, another subject, you can certainly do that. That's why I've designed it for three. When it says session four, if you look down there for Thursday 3.15 to 4.15, you'll notice that under my class, it says Making Friends for God, Eternity Part One. That's exactly what you're gonna get in this first session. So this is a, this is a, this is a three session class and then that completes the class, and then I'm gonna repeat it again. So at lunch, you can tell your friends and send them for the first session this afternoon, which would be under sessions four, five, and six. It gives you an opportunity to get more than one class, and uh, it enables me to interact with more students. I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to do in class, and then we'll pray and jump right into it. The question really is, how does the gospel and the message of Christ impact a 21st century generation? How is this generation different in their thinking processes? And how can we look at the ministry of Christ and learn from the ministry of Christ methods and principles of sharing the gospel with a 21st century postmodern generation? So we're going to spend a lot of time studying the Bible. We're going to look at what Jesus, how Jesus interacted with people. We are going to compare how Jesus interacted with people and biblical principles with the postmodern mind. So in our first session, I'm going to look at the postmodern mind, how it functions, how it thinks, and how Jesus related to people. In the second session, we're going to look at 10 reasons why the Bible is so incredibly powerful and it's so life-changing. And we'll go through 10 fundamental reasons why the Bible is just absolutely life-transformational and why the message of Scripture impacts and meets people in the postmodern mind. Then, in the last session, I'm going to look at the four levels of how the brain processes information. And we're going to look at, you know, Ellen White made an interesting statement. She said, in order to win souls to Jesus, there must be a study of the human mind. And we're going to look at how the brain processes information. I will give you tools in that fourth session, how anybody that you are 
interacting with, sharing your faith with, sharing Jesus with, studying the Bible with, how you can know immediately where they're at in their thinking process, the right questions to ask, you'll understand how they process information. This will be helpful to you too in a decision-making process. We'll look at the will, we'll look at the counselors of the will, conscience, reason, and judgment. We will see how uh, the biblical material impacts that. So we'll do that in our third session. So this class has three sessions, and we're going to look at that in our third session. So let's pray together. Before we do that, anybody have an empty seat by them? Would you just raise your hand if you have an empty seat? Okay, we have a few empty seats up here, Dylan, that you can send people up to. I've got a few people. Uh, maybe Lindsay and Dylan and some of you folks can and stand in just in the aisle, and as people come in, uh, if there's an empty seat, just send them in that direction. All of you should have your worksheets, so let's pray. Father in heaven, this is going to be an exciting class. We thank you for the privilege, for the opportunity of studying the Bible together. We thank you that you are the creator of the human mind, and you who created it understand it. We want to be more effective in our reaching others for Jesus. And so, Lord, grant to us a sense of your guidance as we study. Enable us to understand your word and enable us to understand the methods that Jesus used. And particularly as we study Jesus' methods, we pray that you'd help us to adopt them in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a young Indian boy, teenager, living on an Indian reservation in the middle part of America. One day, he ran out of his house, jumped on his bike, took off, and he was quite upset. And as he was speeding down a hill, he hit a bump, went flying off his bike, broke his arm. So immediately, he was rushed to a little emergency room in the hospital on that, in, on that reservation. The doctor looked at it, recognized that although the break was quite serious, that it could be set and the arm could be casted. So the physician did that. Felt he did a quite a good job. He followed all the protocols that the hospital had. About three days later, the physician was buying something at a little general store in that town. And the chief of the tribe came in, and he looked at the physician, and they began to talk, and the conversation centered around this boy that had the broken arm. And the chief said to the doctor, I'm really disappointed in you. And the doctor thought to himself, wait a minute, I've been medically educated, I have done a good job in setting this boy's arm, he's going to be able to use it again, and the chief said, you know, I'm really disappointed. And the doctor couldn't understand it. And he said, well, chief, why are you disappointed? And the chief said, you healed the boy's arm, but you didn't heal his heart. You, you, you set a fractured arm, but you didn't heal a fractured relationship. You see, doctor, that boy is going to be in to see, be, be in to see you again. And the doctor said, what do you mean? And the chief said, well, you know, I went to visit the boy after he broke his arm, and I discovered that the reason he jumped on his bike and rode down the hill so fast, and the reason he was so upset, is because his father is an alcoholic, and his father's very abusive, and his father beat him. So you set the boy's arm, Doc, but you're going to be seeing that boy again the next time his father comes in and beats him up. You see, you deal with fractured bodies, I deal with deeper issues as the chief of the tribe. That's the essence of Christ's ministry. Jesus looks beyond the externals to the deeper needs. I'd like you to go to your sheets and look there at the first paragraph. Jesus listened to people's deeper stories. So here is a key in effective soul winning for the postmodern mind particularly. Listen for the deeper story. Listen for the deeper story. Jesus listened to people's deeper stories. He healed not only their bodies, but their hearts. The Savior was not a soul-winning technician who memorized the proper formulas, always had the right text, and could out-argue anybody else. Now, pause there. 
Jesus was not a soul-winning technician. You can take 50 courses on soul-winning and memorize every single doctrinal text and be able to out-argue anybody. But unless you listen to the deeper story of people, unless you have a heart like Christ that really cares for people, your effectiveness in leading them to Jesus will be minimal. In the generation that we live, as I will show you from some of the studies, people want to see Christianity modeled. They want to see something that works, not merely a recitation of doctrines. You remember that statement in Ellen White, Desire of Ages, I think it's 196, that says, the love of Christ will melt hearts where the mere reiteration of doctrine will accomplish nothing. Is doctrine important? It's extremely important. Why is doctrine important? Because true doctrine gives you a view of the character of God. So if you believe in an ever, everlasting hell, it pictures God as one who is really wrathful and vengeful. If you understand the truth about the Sabbath, it pictures a God who wants you to rest from stress and anxiety. If you, pick, if you understand the message of healthful living, it's a God that wants you to be physically, mentally, and spiritually whole. So doctrine is important, but soul winning is much more than a recitation of texts. Soul winners have the ability to go out of themselves and enter into the hearts and minds of other people. Somebody said anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. Anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. And you know why there are so few great soul winners? Is because most people are focused on their own lives. And so, looking here again, Jesus, the Savior, was not a soul winning technician who memorized the proper formulas, always had the right text, and could not argue anyone else. Jesus cared deeply for people. He was interested in their happiness, their heartaches, their health, their prospects of heaven at last. He longed to see them happy, healthy, holy. Now Jesus recognized that each individual had this unique set of needs, and Christ ministered to those needs. I'd like you to look at three unlikely prospects for the kingdom of God. Let's suppose that you were giving Bible studies, and somebody said to you, the Baptist pastor of the largest Baptist church in the city wants to talk to you. And he wants to talk to you about law and grace, and he wants to talk to you about how uh, the law of God is done away with and we're saved by grace. Let's suppose that somebody said to you, the leader of the Jehovah Witnesses in this city wants to talk to you, and he wants to talk to you about the fact that Christ uh, came forth from the Father. He was begotten and not divine. Let's suppose that somebody said to you, the Mormon leader of this community wants to talk to you, and he wants to talk to you about baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51, where it teaches baptism for the dead. Now, each of those three things I've mentioned, for the tape's sake, are, of course, incorrect, and there are good biblical answers. But look, how would you like to be confronted with the leading Baptist leader, the leading Jehovah Witness leader, the leading Mormon leader? Would they seem to be, on the outer surface, the greatest prospects for the kingdom of God? You might have some questions, right? Jesus met a man who could have been easily labeled as the head of the opposition. And I want to look at three case histories in the New Testament. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the man by the pool of Bethesda. And I want to look at the varied approaches. Jesus did not have one memorized approach that was canned that he could use for everybody. Jesus often tailored his approaches to reach the people that he was ministering to. He went out of himself to evaluate their needs. So let's first look at Nicodemus. What do you know about Nicodemus? Who can tell me something about Nicodemus? Who was he? Nicodemus was a? A teacher of the law. What sect was Nicodemus from? 
the Pharisees. What was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Were the Pharisees more conservative or were the Sadducees more conservative? Pharisees were more conservative. Sadducees were more liberal. What was one of the key teachings of the Sadducees? They did not believe in what major cardinal doctrine? Resurrect. Boy, this is a good class. I knew it was. So the Sadducees and Pharisees were both Jews, okay? The Pharisees were the more conservative Jews. The Pharisees were so conservative that they would argue over if a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath, was it uh, right to eat it or not? One group of Pharisees said, if you eat an egg laid by a chicken on Sabbath, it's a sin because the Bible says thou shalt not work on Sabbath and the chicken works and if you eat the egg you're participating in his work. <laughs> Another group of Pharisees said the chicken didn't know he worked therefore you can't be held guilty for something the chicken did when the chicken didn't know he worked. <laughs> you remember when the Pharisees were condemning Jesus for healing the man on the Sabbath? They condemned him not because he healed the man but because the man carried his bed, and that was a burden. You, um, you remember in the Old Testament it says um, about a Sabbath day's journey. So the Pharisees had to define how long is a Sabbath day's journey. They ultimately defined it as one-eighth of a mile from your home. That's how they defined it. So if you walked any more than one-eighth of a mile from your home, you were violating that Sabbath principle. But where's your home? How do you define what your home is? Your home is where you eat your Sabbath meal. Therefore, on Friday, if I take my Sabbath meal five miles and go out in the countryside and I give my meal to a friend, that technically becomes my Sabbath home. So there were laws and regulations and fine-spun theories. And some people spent their whole lives studying all these fine-spun theories. Those were part of the Sanhedrin. Now, Nicodemus was one of those, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And you can just imagine that he was not the most likely prospect, according to the disciples, for the gospel. But one night he came to Jesus, because here's something to keep in mind, that you will see a common theme through our class, whether it's Nicodemus, whether it's the woman at the well, whether it's the man by the pool of Bethesda. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every single heart. There is a longing in every heart for eternity. There's a longing in every heart for Christ. There's a longing in every heart for truth. Every person you meet, and later in the class I'll show that to you biblically, every person you meet has this longing for eternity in their heart. It may not be overt, and we'll show that from the Bible later, but let's go to Nicodemus. So Jesus knew something about Nicodemus. What did he know? That there was this longing for eternity in his heart. Jesus knew something about the woman at the well. What did he know? There was a longing for eternity in her heart. Jesus knew something about the man by the pool of Bethesda. What did he know? There was a longing for eternity in his heart. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Now, some people want to come secretly. We're looking at John chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Master, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, notice Nicodemus tries to flatter Jesus. He says, you're a teacher come from God. That's pretty good. I recognize you're a teacher come from God. What does Jesus do? Jesus sees something in Nicodemus' eyes. He hears something in the tone of Nicodemus' voice. Jesus was sensitive to body language. When you are working to people, sensitive to body language. One day I was teaching a class, and a student came in. And I said to my student, how you doing? And he said, real good. <laughs> what did I know immediately? That the body language that he had... And the, and the words that he told me were what? Quite different. After class, I said to him, you know, you told me you're doing pretty good, but maybe you and I need to talk for a little while. Let's go chat. We went and sat down. I discovered that there were some real 
He was going through a spiritual crisis in his life, needed some guidance and direction, and we spent time with him. Jesus met with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus said to Jesus, you're a teacher come from God. In the tone of his voice, in the look of his eyes, in the comment that Nicodemus made, Jesus saw that Nicodemus had a deeper heart need, that the formal religion of Phariseeism wasn't satisfying him, that all the externals won't satisfy. And Jesus said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? To be born again means to allow the revolutionary teachings of Christ and the person of Jesus Christ to change your life. And the Sabbath wasn't satisfying Nicodemus. An understanding of the state of the dead wasn't satisfying Nicodemus. Paying tithe, returning his tithe, wasn't satisfying Nicodemus. Nicodemus was doing the right things externally. He was an upstanding citizen in society. But there was something missing deep down in his heart, and Jesus understood that. There is this God-shaped vacuum in every heart. What do we learn from Jesus' story with Nicodemus? It's the common story that we learn throughout these three case histories. The first thing we learn is Jesus looked beyond the externals. Jesus took the time to minister to individual hearts. Now take your Bible and turn to John 4. Notice the contrast. Nicodemus is a man. In John 4, she's a woman. Nicodemus comes by day, she comes by night. Nicodemus is a Jew, she is a Gentile. Nicodemus comes seeking for Jesus, she stumbles across Jesus. Nicodemus has up an upstanding in the community, she is a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus is fairly wealthy, she is a woman that's fairly poor. When you look at the contrast, why those two chapters back to back in such contrast? Here's why. The Gospel of John reveals case histories of how Jesus related to people. And once you get this, it transforms your ability to be able to witness to people, enables you to connect with people. So we're going to John chapter 4. Notice John 4 and verse 3 and 4. He left Judea. Okay, somebody give me a, a geography lesson. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Where is Galilee in Israel? It is north, south, east, west. North, okay. Samaria. Samaria, north or south of Jerusalem? North of Jerusalem, okay. So if you look like this, look at my finger here. If you look like this. If this were Jerusalem right below my knuckle, Samaria would be here, and right up here would be the Galilee. Now, what's over here? What's in this direction? The Mediterranean. What's, what's here? The Jordan River. Okay, this Jordan over here. Now, if I am here in Jerusalem, and I want to go to Judea, I have three choices. I can go, I can cross the Jordan here, go up this way, and cut back in and come to the Galilee. That's the safest way, and probably, it's not the quickest, but it certainly is the safest. I can go this way and go down to modern Tel Aviv, go up through the Joppa area and come this way. This is really the longest way. Or I can go straight through Samaria. But if I go straight through Samaria, the Samaritans and the Jews are in conflict. Who knows anything about the Samaritans? Somebody raise their hand, tell me, in what you know about the Samaritans. Yes. Tell me again, I couldn't hear. Mixture of Jews and Syrians. Okay, that's good. What Mixture of Jews and Syrians. Okay. Um, somebody developed that thought on the Samaritans. You, you are on target. Mixture of Jews and Samaritans. What else do you know about the Samaritans? What's that? Hated and looked down upon in the Jews. Okay. When the Syrians attacked Samaria, they took many of the Samaritans captive. The problem was, you can't take an entire population captive. You can't empty the whole country. So when the Assyrians, Assyrians settled there, they intermarried with the Jews. 
So you have this hybrid mixture. As the result of that, many practices came into Samaritan Judaism that were totally different and compromised. What happened when Daniel went into captivity in Babylon? He remained firm. What happened when the majority of the Jews were taken captivity by Cyrus? They remained firm. Okay? So imagine this now. Here you have the Jews in Jerusalem. And the Jews who have come back from their captivity have remained firm. They've not intermarried. The, the Samaritan Jews intermarry with the Syrians and the pagan tribes that come through. There are about 16, in fact, tribes that came through and attacked them. So they compromised. They built the Jews who come back from captivity and the Jews want to build the temple. The Samaritans say, hey, here we are. We're going to help you build the temple. The Jews say, don't put your compromising hands on one brick in that temple. We have nothing to do with you, you compromisers. Your sinful, tainted hands. We don't want anything to do with you. The Samaritans said, no problem at all. We'll just build our own temple. So they build a rival temple up at Gerizim. So now what do you have? Two temples. And you have a rivalry between Samaritan quasi-Judaism and the Jews. And it's terrible. It is so terrible that the Jews and Samaritans will not speak. It is so terrible that there's physical battles between them. And Jesus says in John chapter 4, what does Jesus say? John 4, you're looking there at verse 3 and 4. He left Judea and departed again unto Galilee. Now notice, as we continue, but he needed to go through Samaria. What does the text say? He did what? He did what? He needed to go through Samaria. Did Jesus need to go through Samaria geographically? Could he have gone up the Jordan? Could he have gone through Tel Aviv and Joppa? Sure. Here's why he needed to go through. He needed to demonstrate to the disciples that the gospel would break down barriers between all peoples. He needed to demonstrate that the Samaritans had hearts that would be open and the Samaritans would be one of the most receptive fields. So you have compromising Samaritans that are of an ethnic group contrary to Judaism. Everything about Samaria smacked against receptivity. Here's a point that I don't want you to miss. Some of the people that look the least receptive are the most receptive. Some of the people that look the least receptive are the what? Most receptive. Okay, so, it's a, he, so he comes to a woman of Samaria, which is Sychar, and he's weary. The Son of God is weary. It's the sixth hour, it's noon. Most women are going to go to draw water at the town well at, in the morning before the sun comes up, and she comes out there at noon when it's so hot. What does Jesus do? He asks her for a favor. He says, can you give me something to drink? There's nothing like breaking down prejudice than asking somebody for a favor. In the Middle East, no Middle Eastern man or woman would turn down a drink of water. In fact, the Arabs have a saying even today that says that water is the gift of God. He who turns it down to a stranger commits blasphemy. So water, so Jesus, what does he do? He bonds with the woman. He wants to get a conversation going. And as this convert, he asks her for a drink. And as they're drinking, what does he know? He senses immediately that this woman has incredible emotional needs. Now, do you think that Jesus had any special powers that enabled him to know what was going on in the woman's life? Certainly, Jesus was divine. But my guess is this. He immediately saw her at the well at noon, and he knew that that was an odd time to be drinking water gathering water. So he, that, that sent up an antenna in Jesus' mind. He was very observant, very observant of what was going on in her life. There's something else that Jesus knew, and here's what he knew. He knew by the fact that she had come out of the city to draw water, because that well wasn't in the city, so Jesus knew that. 
There was something different about the look in her eyes, something different about her dress. There was something about this woman that indicated that she had an emotionally broken heart. And Jesus did not say to her, now look what he didn't say. He didn't say, you need to be born again. He didn't say, look, you're a sinful adulteress, you've got five husbands, the guy you're living with now isn't your husband, and uh, you know, you've just wrecked your life. You know, I'm going to just be so blunt to tell you like it. No, Jesus didn't do that at all. He said to her, give me something to drink. And as, she was, as he was drinking, they were talking. She was shocked immediately because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. He spoke to her. He was a man, she was a woman, and he asked her for a favor. That was totally uncalled for. She recognized that he was a religious teacher, so she, she sensed in his very demeanor and his relationship to her that, she, that he was different. As you interface at the university that you go to, as you interface with other young people that may not be Christians or committed totally to Christ, they're gonna see something different in you. When they wake up with the hangover after they've been partying on New Year's Eve and they have this empty void in their heart and they're longing for something and you happen to drop by at three o'clock in the afternoon with a divine appointment and they're just waking up and they notice the clearness in your eyes and the brightness of your smile and, and you begin to talk, those moments are divine opportunities to share what Christ really means. And that's what Jesus did. He sensed that this woman had this incredible emptiness in her life, this incredible emptiness in her heart. And he said, you know, ma'am, if you drink this water, you're going to have to drink again, but the water that I give to you, you're never going to be thirsty again. And uh, look at what Jesus said. You take your Bible, look at John 4. Let your eyes drop down to 14. Whoever drinks this water, John 4, verse 14, of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I'll give him will become unto him a fountain of water, bringing up everlasting life. Jesus said, look, there's a thirst that you have in your soul. There's a thirst that you have deep within inside. And then Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. She says, I, I, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Now, there's a couple things. I don't want you to judge this woman too harshly. Most sermons I hear judge this woman very harshly, but there's a couple things to keep in mind. How do you know that none of her husbands died? How do you know that? The text doesn't say it, does it? You don't know that for a fact. There's something else. In Jewish thought, a woman had no legal right to divorce a man. She had no legal right. Only he could have divorced her. So what may have very well happened is she may have had one husband that died. I don't know that. But I know this, she probably had a husband that divorced her because she had no legal right in Judaism for the divorce. Now, if that's true, if that is true, a divorced woman in a small town in Judaism had to reduce herself to a beggar. So what most likely happened is she had her first husband who divorced her. She was left as a beggar, could not survive in a poverty-stricken way, wandered the streets until men began to take advantage of her for, for, for a little money to enable her to survive. So here you have a woman who has incredibly low self-esteem, a woman who's been terribly abused, a woman who men have just trodden down, and a, and a woman who has been poor, poverty-stricken, uh, and a woman who just has eked out some existence and was totally emotionally devastated. That's the picture you have. And here, Jesus says, look, I know you're thirsting for more. I know you're thirsting for something much more, for, for, for love and for, for, for somebody who cares and listens. And so Jesus says that to her. Now, here is the interesting thing. As the conversation goes on, Christ reveals to her in John 4, for the first time, that he's the Messiah. He has not yet told his disciples that he's the Messiah. The first revelation that Christ is the Messiah comes to a woman with a compromised background of Samaria who is the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel, a woman who is totally devastated. Isn't that just like Jesus? To reveal his divinest truths to the least prospects. So he does that. Now, what happens? She 
Verse 28 is a classic. The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the man, now notice, she leaves her water pot. When you come to Christ, you leave your water pot. He that hears to hear has ears to hear that I'm hearing. When you come to Christ, you leave the water pot. I mean, the things that before attracted you, the things that gripped you, the things that just uh, uh, captured you. When you come to Christ, she said, forget about the water pot. I got to tell the story. So she goes into the town, tells the story to the Samaritans. What happens? They begin to come. And Jesus says in verse 35 to the disciples, now the disciples have come back. Don't say there are four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, they're white for the harvest. The disciples had no clue. They wanted to get, go through Samaria as quickly as possible. The disciples said, look, if they were some, they would have said, look, this is postmodern culture. Look, there's nobody interested here. Look, this is an impossible place. Look, we need to figure out ways to reach them. And Jesus said, I'll tell you how to reach them. Develop relationships with people. I'll tell you how to reach them. You don't need all this sophisticated 58 courses. This is what you do. You develop relationships with people. Relationships that break down prejudice. You live an authentic Christian life. And you look for needs in hearts and minds and you unselfishly meet them. When you do that, when you do that, prejudice in postmodern minds breaks down. So Jesus, what does he do? He says to the disciples, they're white for the harvest. These people say to Christ, hey, don't go away, stay. And so what happens in verse 39? Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Verse 40, when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stays two days. So what happens? Jesus stays two days. Many are baptized. But you fast forward after Christ's death and resurrection, Philip who no doubt was with Jesus, said, I remember Samaria. Philip goes back in the book of Acts, preaches in Samaria, and almost the whole country is baptized. Why? Because Jesus took the time to break down prejudice with one woman. Jesus took the time to develop a relationship with one woman. Okay, John chapter 3, Jesus goes directly for the juggler in John 3. He goes directly to the heart of Nicodemus and said, look, I'm not fooling around with you. Your formal religion is not going to satisfy you. need to be born again. John 4, total different approach. He sees the emotional needs. He deals with her sensitively. He draws her out. But in each instance, he's developing relationships. One more story, then we need to go to some studies on the postmodern mind. And I want to show you how these principles fit in. John chapter 5. The story of the man by the pool of Bethesda, John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew, Bethesda. Now when you see Beth in the Bible, it means sign of. Beth-lehem. Beth is sign of. Lehem is bread. Beth is sign of or house of. So the word Bethlehem means the house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, the house of the baker. Okay? Beth Seda. Beth is what everybody is, Beth? House of or sign of. Seda is fish. Beth Seda, the house of fish, a fisherman's village. So Jesus calls James and John and Peter from a fisherman's village to become fishers of men, you see. So Beth Ezda. This is the pool of, what's this pool called? Beth what? Ezda. Beth is house of, Ezda is mercy. So Jesus comes to the place that is the most despicable, and he turns it into a house of mercy. Here's a guy that's been there 38 years. And Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? And... In other words, do you choose to be made whole? The sick man tries to make some excuses. Verse 7, he says, uh, I have nobody to put me into the pool. And uh, when the water is, uh, is stirred up, somebody else comes before me. And Jesus says, look, just believe in what I'm saying. Rise and take up your bed and walk. Here's a man that is hopeless for 38 years. And Jesus ministers to his physical needs. Now, here's what happens. Here is Christ's method of soul winning. Develop relationships listen sensitively to others, meet their needs. Nicodemus's needs was, were spiritual. The woman at the well's needs were psychological and emotional. 
and the man by the pool of Bethesda's needs were physical. So every human being has physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual needs. And our work as soul winners is not to become soul winning technocrats, where we simply memorize large numbers of texts and dump them on people. Our work is to enter into heart to heart with people. Now here is one of the challenges that's taking place in our society. There is a shift in our society that's occurring right now. It is probably the greatest shift in society since the Industrial Revolution. And here's where the shift is. The Industrial Revolution provided 20th century society with factories to produce consumer goods. And that was a very positive thing. But it also had some negative consequences. But here's the shift we're taking in society. In the society that we live in, we are shifting from a personal society to a technological society. We are, we are shifting, and I'll give you a good example of this. Have you ever seen two people in a restaurant eating on either side of the table, both of them not conversing, but texting on their cell phone? <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Have you ever done that? <laughs> The average teenage girl, 17 or 18, sends 100 texts a day. The average guy sends 50. I would. <laughs> All right, now, back to your sheets. The postmodern mind, you see where I am. And you're going to see why this is so significant. You're at the postmodern mind. I'm going to share with you some amazing stuff. Okay, in a 21st century culture of skepticism. See, our culture is a culture that says, question, don't take things for granted. It's a skeptical culture. Positive relationships earn us the right to be heard. Listening to others, caring for others, meeting others' needs breaks down prejudice. Ours is an impersonal society in which high tech has replaced warm touch. Okay, what's going on in our society? High tech is replacing what? Warm touch. Now notice as I read, although the iPhone, texting, tweeting, IMS messaging gives us instant access and provides some incredible witnessing opportunities, it does depersonalize relationships. Now, certainly, we can make contacts by text messaging. Certainly, email, IMS messaging, tweeting. I mean, I was with a young pastor. And he was going on and on and on about how he's tweeting all this, and I texting that. And I knew he wasn't giving one Bible study, not seeing anybody. But man, he was the tweeting genius, you know, tweeting. So he just tweeting, tweeting, tweeting. I messaging, I messaging. So I let him go on for a while, you know. I let him go on. I said, man, I got it. Lord, help me make this young man think a little bit. And all I said was, hey, my friend, God didn't send a tweet. He sent his son. <laughs> God didn't send a tweet, he sent his son. There is no substitute for personal relationships. There is no substitute. So tweet all you want, but don't miss seeing people. Now, Pew, internet, research. Teens are sending an average of 60 text messages a day. The number is up from 50 in a 209 survey. Older girls, teenagers, average 100 messages a day. Now, what impact does technology have upon our personal relationships and what can it teach us about witnessing and meeting the 21st century mind? Although the iPhone, texting, tweeting, messaging gives us instant access, provides some incredible witnessing opportunities, it depersonalizes relationships. I want to read you some of the studies that are being done that are, that are quite amazing. Here's a study. You don't have that. I don't want to give you everything because then you wouldn't have to listen to me. Okay. All right, here's a study. You see where it says it does the personalize in your notes? Uh, it's the first page, one, two, three, under postmodern mind, second, uh, third, third paragraph down. It says here's a fascinating article on the impact of technology and on the mind and relationships. Okay, you don't have the article, but I'm going to quote from it for you. Here it is. 
In the research done, it says, during this age of information, relationships are continually strained. When cell phones or internet is present, it is as if two people standing next to each other are on totally different planets. Loved ones become disconnected from the face-to-face -face contact and start to rely on technology to keep the relationship alive. Cell phones, laptops, iPods, just as someone with the flu have weakened the immune system, someone infected by technology has a weakened attention span. Now that's key. See, here is what the postmodern mind is looking for. Real, genuine, authentic relationships. See, and so what's happening in our society, and this is why Christian witness and the principles of Christ have enormous impact in a society of tweeters. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not against tweeting. I'm not against iPhone messages. That's all fine. But it cannot become a substitute for interpersonal relationships. Jesus was the master of interpersonal relationships. You want to be a soul winner. You listen to people's heart needs. You understand where they're coming from. You develop relationships with them. Now, how is the post, how can we summarize postmodern thought? Okay, if you take, if you have the, the sheet which you have gotten when you came in, I want you to look at the bottom two quotes on that sheet of the first page, bottom two quotes, first page. We're going to read the first quote in bold together. In order, ready to go? You see where I am. First page, bold quote. Ellen White, Fourth Testimonies, page 67, reading together. In order to lead souls to Jesus, there must be a knowledge of human nature and a study of the human mind. Much careful thought and fervent prayer are required to know how to approach men and women upon the great subject of truth. Does truth change? Truth is a constant, but does the packaging change? Granola is granola. Whether you put it in a plastic bag or you have a multicolored box, it's still granola, right? But here's the problem. Some people are putting caramel-colored candies, or M&Ms, let's say, in a granola box and calling it granola. You missed it, but that's okay. <laughs> Everything that passes for truth is not truth. You know. If we're going to reach the postmodern mind, it's going to be important, according to Jesus, to lead souls to Jesus. There has to be a study of human nature and a study of the human mind. You have to know how people think. You have to know how people think. Notice next quote. Let me read it and you follow along. You want to underline it? Fine. He, Jesus passed by no human being is worthless, but sought to apply the saving remedy to every soul. In whatever company he found himself, he presented a lesson that was appropriate to the time and circumstances. Now, this is powerful stuff. Jesus understood human nature. He studied people. He tried to figure out where they were coming from. He approached the uh, Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the man by the pool of Bethesda all differently. Why? Because he presented lessons that were appropriate to them. He took biblical truth and he applied it to their situation. Now, we're going to look at postmodern thought summarized. I'm going to skip by the Canaanite woman, the Roman centurion, the Jewish scribe. And I'm going to look at eight principles of postmodern thought with you. What does the postmodern mind think, and why is the gospel so powerful? Why is the message of the Seventh Avenue Church so powerful? Why is the Bible so powerful? What is the culture of the postmodern university student today and the postmodern young adult in their 20s or 30s? Okay, here are eight basic philosophical principles of the postmodern thought summarized. Number one. For the postmodern, life is based on relationships. Belonging and a sense of identity with the larger community are far more important than believing a particular creed or doctrine. So for the postmodern mind, in a society that's starved for relationship, a society of, of technology, there's this hunger in the soul for relationships. Why is it that many people spend Saturday night buying a glass of beer and going down to the local uh, pub joint, you know, why? It's not merely because they want to drink, it's they want relationship. And that's the place they find relationship. So 
Life is based on relationships, belonging and our sense of identity. So for the postmodern mind, if you think you're going to prove truth initially, you're going to have a lot of barriers. It used to be we believe, then we belong. Now, you have to break down relationships and give people a sense of belonging so that their mind will be open to believe. Okay? So that tells you that if you are going to be working with university students particularly, find out what they're interested in and try to get them involved with you before they come to the point of belief. What does Ellen White say in social relationships? The gospel comes in what? Contact with the world. So developing relationships, drawing people into our friendship circle. If they're joggers, go jogging with them. That's if you know how to jog. <laughs> if they like bike riding, go play bikes with them. Go ride bikes with them. Tennis, do whatever you can to develop relationships. Okay, number two. Each individual, in the postmodern mind, each individual creates their own reality. There are no objective norms. See, you may think to yourself, the Bible condemns adultery. The Bible condemns homosexuality. The Bible, but that's foreign to the postmodern mind. Why? Because there are no objective norms. You create your own reality. That's the way the postmodern mind thinks. So you can read all the texts you want in the Bible about moral purity. You can read all your texts you want in the Bible. And you know what their thinking is? That's okay for you. But I have my own reality. And as long as I don't abuse other people, that's my reality because there are no objective norms. That's a whole different way of thinking for Christian young people. Okay, number two. No, keep, there are no objective norms. Feelings of rightness or an inner sense of moral correctness guide all behavior. Postmoderns are looking for models more than methods. They seek application more than theory. When you can demonstrate to the postmodern mind that Christianity works in your life, and when you can show the relationship of biblical principles to life, it transforms their lives. You know, when I first began evangelism 45 years ago, America was much more of a Christian culture than it is today. And I would probably have 20 or 25 texts when I preached on the Sabbath to prove that Saturday was the Sabbath, because I knew that I was dealing with a society of people that largely, you know, uh, rejected uh, Sabbath and they were Sunday keepers. Now, I might use 12 texts, 14, 15, but I'm constantly through that message showing the relationship of the Sabbath to your life. It's not so much proving Sabbath, but it is showing how Sabbath is my rest from stress. How Sabbath is a symbol of universal brotherhood. That if all the world believed in God as the creator, and if all the world accepted Sabbath, there would be no war, because we're brothers and sisters. So we show the significance of Sabbath by proving it from the Bible, yes, but we integrate it with lifestyle for a postmodern culture. That's fundamentally critical. So number two, each individual creates their own reality. There are no objective norms. How do you help people see the objective norms of the Bible? by showing the relationship of those biblical principles to the lifestyle. Number three, the essence of life is experience in the context of a larger meta-narrative. Now, if you know anything about postmodern thought, you hear the word meta-narrative. What is a meta-narrative? It's a larger story. So postmoderns are looking for the larger story. Why do I live? What's the purpose in life? Do Adventists know anything about the larger story? Do Adventists know anything about a cosmic conflict between good and evil? See, this society was made for our message. Okay, number four. Ideas of truth, reason, and knowledge give way to signs, experience, and feelings. Now, this is incredibly dangerous. For the postmodern mind that wants relationships, experience is everything. So if I can live in the moment and have a positive experience, that's what matters to me in the postmodern thought. Now, five, there's a strong sense of justice and fairness. Tolerance, compassion, and equality are the new norm. So for the postmodern mind, 
you do not evaluate truth by the result of the objective standards of the Bible. How you evaluate truth is based on, is this tolerant? In everybody's definition of tolerance. You see why Seventh-day Adventists swim against the tide, say, of homosexuality? God calls us to be loving, to be merciful, to be gracious. But he also calls us to biblical standards that clearly reveal. You see why when in the postmodern mind young people living together are not married, and Seventh-day Adventists say, you know, that's not in harmony with the Bible. But they say, wait a minute, tolerance, justice, equality, fairness. So that is an admirable quality. Does God call us to do justly, to love mercy? Sure he does. But when you look at tolerance, tolerance is not justification for any kind of behavior. So there's this strong sense of justice and fairness, of rightness. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the judgment, and we believe in the judgment. Although things have been unfair in this life, everything will be set right in the judgment. We believe in a God who, in the spite of the unfairness of life, is always fair. And so our message fits in. Okay, verse, uh, not verse, yeah, number six. There's a move away from materialism, capitalism, and consumerism as the essence of life's meaning. There's a strong interest by many postmodern people in health and a simpler life. Postmoderns see through the consumerism and materialism of our society. That's why you're going to see in any upmarket community, you go to any major city today, you're going to see people jogging. You're going to see if the weather is good, you're going to see them biking. New York City, we were working there in Greenwich Village, which is, used to be the essence of hippiedom. And Elder Wilson and I, my wife, uh, held, my wife held a cooking school there or a, uh, a health series there and uh, did some health demonstrations. One of the things we noticed about, about Greenwich Village, 13 vegan vegetarian restaurants. Why? Why? Because this postmodern generation, this postmodern generation has a great interest in healthful living, a more simple life. You see, this, this freedom from consumerism. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists have a phenomenal opportunity. It's one of the reasons, incidentally, why my wife has just developed a new cookbook called Natural Lifestyle Cooking, a new workbook for those that are do doing cooking classes. Uh, she's here in the back. Just stand up for a minute, dear, if you would. Some of you want to talk about reaching people through health. Just talk to her after the class, and she'll be more than happy to help you tell you about some of the materials. We're doing a new instructor's material on healthful living. Postmodern people, young adults, we just baptized a young couple in their 30s uh, that came to our nutrition series. Just baptized also a physician in New York City. No interest in religion at all. Postmodern, but came to the health program, broke down their prejudice. Okay, number seven. Truth has much more with, for the postmodern mind, truth has much more to do with doing it right than getting it right. How you live and relate to others is far more important to the postmodern than what you think or believe. So they're saying, look, don't tell, try to tell me to get it right. I want to know about living, and I want to know about successful living. Okay, number eight is significant. Since life is the project of, product of biological chance, most postmoderns are evolutionists. Its meaning has to be found within every person. The way they'll look at the Bible is this. They don't look at the Bible or other sacred writings like the Hindus' Bhagavad Gita and the Muslims' Koran. They don't look at them as negative. They say the Bible and all other sacred writings provide stories of people seeking for meaning and purpose rather than objective truth. You want to capture the mind of the postmodern. You start developing relationships with them. You break down prejudice. You listen sensitively when they have needs. And then you make a comment like this. You know, John, you're facing some incredible challenges, I know. Uh, challenges in, in, in your job. You've just been laid off. The bills are mounting up. And, you know, it reminds me of kind of a story that I read one time um, in the Bible where it talks about Moses. And he was with the children of Israel. And he had a real incredible need. And uh, that need was to be fed. And, and God miraculously fed him in the, in the desert. And, you know, one of the things that I found that really works for me when I get in some kind of challenges like you're facing, and this 
you know, is, is, is a very personal thing. So you use the language of the postmodern to reach the postmodern. And remember, the postmodern mind wants stories, 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 stories. Tell me a story. And so what do you do? Here's something that has worked for me. Because why? What's the postmodern mind thinking? They're thinking, that may be your truth, but it's not my truth. They're thinking, what works for you? So testimony, testimony, testimony. Let me share with you what, something that really uh, has helped me in those situations. You know, Moses was in a similar situation where he had a great human need. And as he did, prejudice was broken. As, as he did, God sent manna down from heaven and uh, fed him. And, you know, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes on the seasides of Galilee as well. And when I read those stories, I'll tell you what it does for me personally. It gives me confidence that there's a God that's bigger than I am. And, you know, I don't know what your religious experience is. I don't know what your faith background is. It may be nothing at all. And that does not relate, that does not in any way um, put a barrier in our relationship. I respect you, and, uh, but I just want you to know what works for me. So you share, then you let it go. And in that friendship relationship of sharing, pretty soon that person, you're going to find that there is this openness in their heart. I want to close this section with one of the most powerful texts in all of the Bible. I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to look at Ecclesiastes 3. This text changed my thinking. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 changed our approach to witness. Okay, Ecclesiastes 3, you're looking at verse 10. This is one of the most powerful witnessing passages in the Bible that helps you look beyond what is. Philippians chapter, or rather, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 10. I have seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied, which, which the sons of men are to be occupied. What's that God-given task? It's sharing Jesus' love. It's sharing principles of eternity. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work God does from the beginning to the end. He's put eternity in their hearts. The postmodern teenager, the postmodern university student, who puts up incredible barriers and intellectual arguments against Scripture, has eternity in their heart. They have eternity in their heart. The hardest heart has eternity in their heart. I was traveling on the South Sea Islands in a very difficult situation. We were on the Solomon Islands. There were two major groups that had a civil war, the Malaitans and the Guadalcanalans. I had come there just after the civil war was over. Bridges were blown up, cars were bombed and blown apart. There was terrible tragedy. And I was supposed to hold an evangelistic meeting in the marketplace of Haniara. We would come every day at about 4 or 4.30, and there would be the fish market, and it smelled like perfume. <laughs> the meat market, the vegetable market. And as the marketers would clear out the stalls, there would be guts of the fish left there, and there would be old rotten vegetables, and we'd have to get hoses out and water it down, and sweep it out, and get ready for the evening meeting. One night, after I preached, out of the darkness, I had greeted people. And I came by the side of this pavilion. I saw this man. He had been standing on the side, large man, muscular man. He had been standing on the side of the auditorium listening. Meeting was over. People had left, but the guy still stood there. I kind of eyed him and began to make my way toward him. He came down and he said to me, could there ever be forgiveness for me? I said, what do you mean? He said, do you know who I am? I said, no. He said, I am the man that the government of this nation fears the most. I am the man that commandeered the only 
destroyer or like the only warship that our country has. It was just a little island. I took that warship with my crew up along the seacoast and bombed out the villages. I must have killed 100 in this village and 50 in this village and 75 in this village. Said I set the villages afire. We thought nothing of beheading people. But tonight, I heard you talk about Jesus, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. Do you think there's any hope for me? I put my arms around that man. We prayed together. Tears rolled down his face. And he disappeared into the darkness. And I never saw him again. God has placed eternity in every single heart. Don't let the postmodern mind intimidate you. What you have as an authentic Seventh-day Adventist Christian, they are looking for. They are looking for. You can't out-argue them, but you can develop a relationship. You can share need. You can share the story of what God is doing in your life, and prejudice will come down. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. Thank you that Jesus is indeed the shaper of human hearts and the developer of human minds. I just pray that you would bless in a very special, special way each young person, each adult here. Teach us to listen sensitively, to minister to human hearts. Teach us the art and the skill of soul winning more effectively. We thank you in Jesus' name that you guide us in Christ's name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.